So uh, for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Dan Jarvis. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're starting a three-part series today, but it's only going to take us one week to get through it because we're starting it today. Then we'll follow up with part two at the Last Supper on Thursday, and then the conclusion will be Easter Sunday, seven days from right now. So um, because Jesus lives, everything is different for you and for me. Everything is different about our future. Uh, Everything is different about our ability to see our lives change and transform. Our perspective of eternity is different. And so I wanted to walk through this in a couple different parts. And today is kind of going back and saying, well, what, what was it that Jesus came to accomplish? And why did him dying on the cross and then ultimately rising from the dead, why did that need to happen? What did that mean for us? Um, so as, as we think about Easter week, or Holy Week as some people call it, we, we kind of think this time is dedicated to the purpose of you know, thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a great week to focus on that. Technically, every time we meet on a Sunday morning, not just Easter Sunday morning, we're commemorating the resurrection of Jesus. That's why church is on Sunday. Uh, but once a year, it's a, it's, we make an extra big deal of it, and we say, you know, let's, let's remember what Jesus went through to pay the price for our sins And now let's celebrate the new life that he's made possible. So that's coming up. That's next weekend. Today, we just want to set the stage and kind of understand from the scripture what it was that Jesus came to do. There's actually multiple answers to that question, but we're going to zero in. If you think about your Bible, most of what we read about Jesus is toward the end of it, right? In the New Testament. When you get to the Old Testament, you've got all sorts of law. Now, you could say that the law was preparing people's heart for Jesus. And there are different places in the Old Testament where you could even say, hey, there's an example of Jesus kind of interacting with someone before the New Testament. Really neat stuff to study on that. Um, But the whole narrative of the law of Moses was a weight that people just couldn't bear. So they would look at the law and they would look at the failure in their own lives to follow it and they would leave the discussion pretty discouraged because the very best that you could do is try to keep up with a fairly complex checklist of what you needed to do to get your sins covered by sacrifices. So you had this whole temple sacrificial system. You had the tabernacle and temple had to be set up in a certain way that established not just your not, not how to worship God exactly that was involved, but it also established your separation from God. Because no matter what you did, you weren't as holy as God. You carried your sin with you, and so you couldn't come close to him and be in his presence. Jesus came to change that story. Jesus came to bring a new covenant, a new testament, that would change our whole ability to have a relationship with God. So to set that up, I've asked my friend Martin to come up. Um, and read for us from Hebrews 10. If you want to open your Bible there, you can. Hebrews 10, 1 through 25. We'll read that whole text, and then we'll break it down a little and see what Jesus came to accomplish for us. Okay, so as Dan said, Hebrews 10, and we'll read that together. There's a pew Bible there in front of you. We'll read from that translation if you want to join in with us. And uh, just as we head into this, we just sang a song called Living Hope, and There's a line in there that we sang. I'm sure you caught it, um, but it really grabbed my attention. And it was in the first verse. It said, the work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. 
And it's really what this summarizes here as we read this together. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 10. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all, once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. First Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, although they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Isn't that cool that Jesus sat down when he finished? There were no chairs in the tabernacle or in the old temple because their work was never done. If they could sit down, that would be a way for them to go, I'm done, I can relax now. Jesus finished and he sat down at the right hand of God. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are made holy. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Lord, this is your word. Thank you for it. May you drive it into our hearts. I pray for Dan as he speaks. Give him strength that he needs for his voice, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Martin. So I love that text out of Hebrews, but actually the whole book of Hebrews is about that same theme. Um, This book was written to people who were considering abandoning Christianity and going back to the old law of Moses, the old system. And they had a variety of reasons why they would be tempted to do this. 
A few of them would be, and maybe the most obvious and potent one, is there would be a lot less persecution in their life. So as a follower of Jesus in the first century, you were up against all sorts of negative pressure. There, there was your family that might be really disappointed that you're not following the traditions. Then there's the society that wasn't necessarily friendly to the law of Moses or Jews either, but at least it was an accepted pathway. Uh, and then you have, of course, you know, the, the Roman emperor and all of that. So there's all sorts of persecution going on throughout this time and in the places where people lived. And it would have been a lot easier just to say, you know what? Let's just follow the first half of the Bible, <laughs> you know, like because it's, Jesus is the problem here in our lives. If we, if we just go back to the law of Moses, our lives will be a lot simpler. The other dynamics that, um, and we could dig into this another time, but the, the law, at least for people who didn't really comprehend what God was trying to do, give you, ironically, less personal responsibility for your life and your decisions, less faith required. Because there was a system to believe in, and other people were taking care of that system. And so you could kind of, you could kind of think, you know, I, my, my heart might not be right, kind of like the Pharisees would have thought. I can get away with anything in my heart because externally, the right things are still happening. The sacrifices are getting made, and I, you know, I, went, I got to the temple enough times, I participated in the festivals, and so I'm okay. When Jesus came and called people to a heart change, not just a different checklist to follow, but actually a different way of living in your heart, in your mind, that actually increases personal responsibility quite a bit. So this letter shows us why the old law can't do what really needs to be done. Why did we need a new covenant? So this kind of gets to the question, why did Jesus come? Especially when there already was a temple and there already were priests and there was already the Ten Commandments. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come and do something else? And so as you read that old law, here are some of the things it can't do for you. It can't fix our hearts. You can read the law all day long. It doesn't make you a better person. It can't cleanse our consciences. So if you feel guilty about what you've done, Reading the rule book is not going to make you feel less guilty. And following the checklist of sacrificial system is, is going to give you a sense that like temporarily you've sort of covered your problem, but it doesn't take it away. It can't forgive our sins. It can't empower new life. And it can't finish the job, just like Martin brought up. The, the priest couldn't sit down because there was never a time when the task was actually complete. You always had to make the next sacrifice. You always had to do the next ritual. You always had to purify the next vessel. There was never a moment when you could say, whew, we're safe. We accomplished it. We're done. Our consciences are clear. Paul wrote about this in Romans 8. He said, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So this is exciting, right? Because if you, if you had lived in that Old Testament era, and, and particularly if you were one that wasn't really keyed into the faith and love that God was actually offering, you're just kind of looking at the rules going, well, I'll do what I have to do. And that's just an endless drudgery, right? An endless checklist. And, and God came 
and did what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't fix our hearts. The law couldn't change our, our the law couldn't cleanse our conscience, but Jesus came to do that. So we're going to re-examine the text we read from Hebrews 10, and we're going to just celebrate a few of the things that Jesus accomplished for us. Uh, and the first one is this. If you look to verse 1, um, it says that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. So if you, were, if you were there, maybe you were traveling with the people of Israel in the wilderness and you went into the tabernacle, which is kind of like a big tent version of the eventual permanent temple, and you were to wander around in there, you'd see all sorts of rituals happening, sacrifices happening, priests doing different things. What is that? Well, according to this verse, it's actually a shadow, it's a copy, it's a pattern of something real something in heaven. Turn back one page, the very beginning of chapter 8, and it breaks this down. And it's kind of interesting just to imagine this. Here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. I look at that and I think, wow. What, what we read in the Old Testament, how precise it had to be, all the different rules, that, that was the best approximation you could get on earth of something really glorious and amazing in heaven. So Jesus didn't want us to live in the shadow forever. The point was to get us to him. The point was to bring us into God's presence. So we can celebrate our invitation into the reality instead of just clinging to the shadow. There's so much more to life. There's so much more to existence. There's so much more to faith that we don't even see or understand from our earthly perspective. And when we get to heaven, our eyes will be open and we'll see so much more. And you could almost imagine that someone in that, in that temple environment trying to do the old system they might have been feeling the burden of all of that, but, but sadly, that was actually, a, it was the picture of something really glorious and amazing, but they had no access to it. There was never a way to get connected from one to the other. Jesus established that connection. The second thing we can celebrate is the cleansing and purity of your soul that Jesus makes possible. Okay, look at the second part of verse 1, chapter 10. It says the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never able to provide cleansing, perfect cleansing, for those who came to worship. Didn't matter how much you did, how many times you went to church, how, much you, how many sacrifices you brought, it was never over. You were just caught in kind of an endless loop. Because in your soul, there was still a problem. The law couldn't fix what was wrong in your heart. So we look to Jesus, and we say, wow, Jesus is here providing me not just with sort of a ticket out of my sin. He's, he's not just providing me with an, you know, kind of the ultimate sacrifice instead of all the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. He's actually providing me with cleansing in my heart. So we'll get to that here in the next part of the celebration. Number three, celebrate the removal of your sins instead of a temporary covering of them. So the law was... It was adequate 
to kind of keep things going, but it didn't solve the problem. Look at verse 4. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's kind of obvious. There has to be more to it than that. The blood of the bulls and the goats and all the law of Moses, that was a shadow of something to come, something real. Now, I think we have a modern version of this, not at all related to the law of Moses, but related to the same heart issue that would lead people to want to trust in the law instead of trusting in Jesus. So you think about the people that are, you know, Hebrews being written to, some of them being tempted to go backwards and they'll give up Jesus and go back to the law. Say, like, you know, what, what would be going through somebody's mind as they're thinking that? And why, why would people be motivated by that to begin with? So here's how we frame this, I think, in our time. Certainly a lot of non-Christians would think this way, but I've met a lot of Christians who misunderstand the gospel and thus they think this way. And they think that they've got all these bad things that they've done and that the good things they do are going to outweigh the bad as long as they can keep that balance. So I remember thinking that as, I don't know, probably about 14 years old, and I remember one day feeling really guilty. Um, it was just things going on in my mind, lust and pride, stuff I was saying to my parents. I just, I, I, one day I was just praying, and I was thinking, like, I'm just terrible. You know, like, I've got all this terrible stuff. And I was feeling really bad about it, and I remember praying, okay, God, I will promise to read my Bible for one hour every day. Now, in, what was I actually trying to do when I said that? I was trying to atone for my own sin in like really a silly way, right? Like, that, like why would God even care if I read my Bible for an hour if it was like for that purpose? Just to, but I was thinking about all the bad things I was thinking and doing and thinking, I know what I need. I need to outweigh that with something really, really good. And, and so in that kind of twisted logic, here's what's wrong. Let's say that you do play the balancing game, and you think, all right, man, I've had a really rough past. I'm going to have a really good future. I made a really bad decision. I'm going to counterbalance it with a really good decision. What happens to the bad decision? What happens to the sin that's in your past? It's still there. So no matter how much good you do, it doesn't delete the bad. You see the problem there? So you could try really, really hard to outweigh bad with good, but you still have bad, which means you're still not holy, which means you still can't come close to God. So whether you open up the law of Moses and say, wow, I'm going to do everything this says, or whether you just sort of in your own mind think up your own law, kind of like some sort of big scale and balance, it betrays a little bit of a human heart problem that what we tend to want to do is to fix our own mess. So we look at the sin that we committed and we think, I should pay for that. I should, I should pay God back. I owe God for the bad things I've done. Jesus came to break us completely out of that cycle. A cycle that we could never get on top of, we could never win even if we tried, even if you were the best of humankind. I mean, if you could just do everything right, you would still have the same problem. So Jesus came to offer us a different way. Look at verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, 
offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. So Jesus didn't, he didn't throw out the Old Testament. He didn't negate the law of Moses. He fulfilled it. He did for us what no animal sacrifice or no human good intention or flipping over no new leaf and trying harder, none of that could work. But Jesus did the one thing that could. So then we get to do this. We get to celebrate the holiness that Jesus died to provide for us. Okay, look at verses 10 and then verse 14. It says in verse 10, For God's will for us was to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So once you put your faith in Jesus, there's never an additional sacrifice that you have to make. There's no penance you have to pay. There's no making it up to God to try to cancel out the bad thing you just did. Your, your whole relationship with God is now different. It's not transactional. There's not a checklist. There's no way. There's, Jesus has done for you once what a thousand times of you doing it still would never have accomplished. So you receive that. You say, God's will for me is now to live in that holiness. Holiness be, means being set apart for righteous use, for special use. So Jesus actually makes that possible for you no matter what's in your past. I remember I was in the jail ministry years ago and we had this little flyer that we would give out. On one side it had the Ten Commandments and on the other side it had the good news about Jesus. And the aim of that was, you know, somebody isn't going to be very thankful about the forgiveness of their sins if they don't think that they've ever sinned. Uh, but when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you actually look at the law and you think it through, you start realizing you're in trouble, right? The, the closer you look, the more you're like, whoa, um, uh-oh, because I have lied and I have stolen and I haven't had God first and I have used God's name in vain. And you start realizing that if you've broken the law, you need help, you need some sort of rescue, and there's nothing you can do to fix your own problem. So you flip the paper over and you'd see, you know, here's the love of Jesus and the opportunity for forgiveness. I remember someone coming to our chaplain's office and asking uh, about their past, and they just said, I know there's no way God could forgive me because I've broken all of these commandments. Here's what's amazing. It, the level of your sin has nothing to do with whether or not God can forgive you. So whether you have sinned to somehow to the maximum of whatever you think that would look like, or whether you think you've been a really good citizen and you've hardly sinned at all, which, wink, wink, nobody is that. But um, either way, Jesus' willingness to forgive you is not about how good or bad you've been. It's actually about his choice to love you and to invite you into his family. And when he died on the cross, he died and gave a sacrifice that was sufficient for all of the sins of all of the people of all of the world. Which means that if you choose to put your faith in Jesus, your sin can be atoned for. Not because of the good that you'll do, but because of the good that Jesus did. Not because you're worthy, but because he's worthy. That's why Jesus' forgiveness is available. So, you know, in that, for, for that person that was worried about that, we got to give them the really good news that, hey, it, it isn't, there is no count in heaven to say, wow, that person sins, you know, 6,772 times. Oh, that's one too many. Sorry. Um, no, Jesus' forgiveness is available to you 
Um, there's a new covenant where God will replace your heart. He'll transform you from the inside out. He'll make you holy. Then look at verse 14. It says, For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Which is kind of cool to think about the tenses there. He, he forever made you perfect by that offering, which means your status before God is not a sad, sorry, unworthy sinner. What's your status before God? perfect because Jesus is perfect and you're with him now you're in the process the last part of the verse of being made holy where that starts to live out in your life and more and more you start to live with less sin and more holiness as you go forward but we celebrate that and we say all of that is possible because Jesus was willing to come himself and die on the cross for our sins here's the last one celebrate that Jesus has given you full access to God. Now, back in the day, if you wanted access to God, you would go to the priest who would then do something for you, right? Um, some places, even today, some religious traditions might, you know, you pray, but if you really want your prayer to be heard, you should take your prayer to someone who God might listen to because they're a lot better or holier than you are. Now, we all pray for each other here, but it's not based on that premise, right? We say, hey, sure, we all pray for one another's needs, but it's not like you're coming up to the person you think is the holiest person in the church and say, hey, can you put in a good word for me, big man upstairs? No, we're not doing that, because why not? Because we all have, we all have full access to God. We can walk in and talk to God ourselves. We don't need a middleman anymore, because Jesus did that middleman job for us. So look at verse 19. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. So when you, when you would imagine yourself in prayer, kind of walking up to God's throne, you don't have to walk in and apologize for being there. Like, oh, I know I don't deserve to be here, but like I have this really big need. Could you help me out? That's not the spirit in which you walk in and pray. You get to walk in as a son or daughter would walk in to talk to their father because that's the relationship that Jesus purchased for you. So your full access now is not based on whether you've been especially good or especially bad. It's just based on what Jesus has done for you and in you. So you think of it. The law couldn't give you that. Remember the law... At the temple, there was the most holy place, kind of the inner sanctum. They called it the Holy Holies. And guess how many people were allowed to go in there? Just one, once a year. The high priest could go in one time a year and be sort of like, in, in representation form, as close to God as a person could get. But nobody else could go in because there wasn't direct access. He was the only guy allowed to do that. When Jesus died on the cross, it says that the curtain of the temple ripped in half. It was sort of the supernatural sign that the way is now open. There is no more curtain. You have just as much access to the most holy place of God as I do or as some priest does or some monk does or anybody else. We all have that direct access. So Jesus made that way possible. His suffering, his sacrifice opened the door for you to have a real and personal relationship with God. So, I don't know about you, but I think that's amazing. So we'll talk more about that when we get to the Last Supper in a few days. But I want to give you this encouragement, which is what our text ends with, and that's the encouragement not to give up. 
So in context, you know, the, the challenge was there were people that really wanted to give up because they were under pressure, they were under persecution, it was hard work, they were, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, hold on to your faith. Don't let this go. You're stepping from shadow into reality here. Don't give up just before it all happens. So verse 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The more pressure we feel, the more we get together and motivate each other. The more we remind each other that, hey, we're just at the beginning of something amazing here. Stay with it. Don't give it up. Uh, This is the life that Jesus died to provide. We'll pick it up there on Thursday night. For now, let's pray. Lord, you've given us so much, so much blessing that we didn't deserve, so much grace that we didn't earn, and you've allowed us to walk right up into your most holy place with no barriers, no priest in between here and there. You've welcomed us in as family members. So Lord, first of all, we want to thank you for sunsetting the old covenant and bringing us the new covenant. What an incredible blessing that is. Thank you, Lord, that we have it all worked out, all spelled out in the Bible, that we can see where, the, where your plan started and where it's come and what's happening next. Thank you for this special week that we set aside on our calendars to reflect on what you accomplished on our behalf knowing that these things impact us every moment of every day on the calendar. Uh, But here we are saying uh, that this special week is a time that we do want to reflect intentionally on what you've accomplished for us and then what you're calling us to do. So as we study, as we pray, as we sing, as we take communion together on Thursday, I pray that you would impress these things on our hearts and that come Sunday morning next week, Uh, we would be, of course, singing and shouting about your amazing resurrection, but recognizing that that historical event, that truth, is not just about something in the past. It's about our lives right now. And all the forgiveness and all the power and all the joy of all of this is supposed to be what animates our daily steps. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. In Jesus' name. All right, we'll see you hopefully Thursday. If not then, Sunday morning. God bless you.